We are walking through this idea, and not just an idea, we're actually walking through a book, but we're walking through this idea that Jesus is greater, and he is absolutely greater than anything that ever was, ever is, and ever will be, and we have looked at how Jesus is greater than the prophets, we looked at how Jesus is greater than the angels, today we're just looking at how Jesus is greater, and how um, these are... As we walk through this, I've got this broken into two-word groups in every single group. So the first group we're going to look at is delegating and stewardship. The second one is death and substitute. The third, let's see here, let me get to sheet number four, is defeat and release. And finally, deity and humanity is where we will be uh, this morning. And hopefully I can get through this fairly quickly so that uh, as we will be observing the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of the service. So let's go ahead and hop on in there. And I'm not going to read through all of the passages of Scripture as I normally would do. Uh, I'm just going to read through the breakout sessions of each point as we walk through it. So Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 is where we will begin. And then as I get through with what the Lord's laid on my study habits and on my heart this week... I'll share those, and then we'll read the next passage of Scripture. So, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, reads such as this. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in, for in that he put all subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see, excuse me, for now we do not yet see all things put under him. Okay? So as we begin this, this passage today, we're talking about delegating and stewardship. Delegating and stewardship. And we have talked about angels. We've talked about the prophets. And today we're going to talk a little bit more about angels, but nowhere near in depth as we have in the previous week. Today, we're first looking at this delegation of authority and of power and stewardship. And the first thing he says is that the author wrote, For he, being God, has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. So very clearly, right out of the gate, the author makes it very clear that the world is not currently, nor will it be, in subjection to angels. Angels have no authority over the earth. This means angels do not have dominion over anything of the world. Angels have no authority on earth or towards the earth, other than what is directly given through direct missions from God. That's the only way, is through where God speaks to them, and God's authority is transmitted through them. They have zero authority apart from what God gives them. And in that idea, angels do not contain authority, but contend for the authority that is in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they contend in that. And angels carry the authority of the Word of God to those who are to exercise faith in that Word and live out that Word. You see, one commentator wrote it this way. His name is Tasker, or last name is Tasker, in his epistle to the Hebrews. He said, God ordained that angels should serve the heirs of salvation, that's you and I, and not, the, and not rule the world to come. 
Angels are to serve the heirs of salvation and not rule the world to come. But then the author writes, but one testified in a certain place. Now I want you to understand, he's not like oblivious to where this comes from. The author is not. He knows where this comes from. It comes out of Psalm 8, uh, where David speaks. But he says it this way. It's just a curious way the author says this multiple times throughout this, this epistle. But he says, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So, when the author writes, what is man that you are mindful of him, is a quote from Psalm chapter 8. From Psalm chapter 8. And Psalm 8 is written by David. Psalm 8, 6 is David's proclamation to God when observing the powerful, creating power of God. David is absolutely speaking of the glory and power of God. If I were to flip back over there in Psalm 8, uh, beginning there in verse 3 of Psalm 8, He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Okay, you understand there that says son of man. That's a lowercase s. That is not God. God didn't visit the son of man. God, you know, when Jesus references himself, I'm getting ahead of myself. But I want you to understand this is a... uh, a Hebrew idiom of all men. That's what it's meaning. All men. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And in the original Hebrew, that meant lower than the God, lower than God. Elohim actually is the original way that's phrased. And you crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you have made him in Psalm 8, verse 6. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That's from Psalm 8, uh, verses 3 through the closing of that chapter. David, as I said, is absolutely speaking of the glory and the power of God. And in the psalm, David's psalm was spoken and recorded in Hebrew. And in that original language meant a little less than Elohim. A little less than God. And this phrasing of making man a little lower than the angels is better explained as that man was made a little less than God or a little below the glory of God is what Tasker tells us in his commentary. And when we observe this scripture from Psalm 8, 6, or from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8, when we observe this scripture, we see the dominion that God has given to mankind in their stewardship of the earth. God has delegated the stewardship of the earth to mankind. Now, I want you to understand, there's an extreme that you could take and, and, you know, climate change and all that and, and the chaos that has ensued with all that. There's an extreme to that. But we are to be good stewards of this earth. We know we are to be. We're not supposed to be <coughs> running around and throwing trash out our windows and all that, our car windows and everything like that as we go down the road. We know that, you know, if, if uh, you need to be mindful of, of different things that, that can be effective that can affect our environment and our culture and things of that nature. But listen, 
This world is going to burn up one day, and it's going to be by the will of God, and it's going to happen at the time of God, and, and I don't know how that works. I believe God wants us to live for His glory, be good stewards of the things He's given to us. You know, we have authority and, and dominion and power over the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea, all those things. You know, and, and we've got people that saying now that, that we need to get rid of cows because they, when they pass gas, it's destroying the ozone layer. I mean, come on. It's the insanity of it all. We've got to quit feeding cows such stuff that makes them pass gas. I'm telling you, there's an extreme out there. But we do need to be good stewards of the planet. I can't steward a cow like that. You know, that doesn't make any sense. But there is extremes, you know. But God calls us to be a good steward. And God puts all these things underneath, and they put them underneath the subjection of us as individuals, as mankind. And that scripture says, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels, or a little lower than Elohim. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. We've been crowned with glory and honor. Nowhere do we find this language in the fullness of Scripture in regard to any other creature except man. There's nowhere else where that's listed that glory and honor has been crowned on anything other than there on mankind. No creature, not even the planet, nothing. We are created in the image of God. He created them male and female. That's how he created us. And he created us with glory and honor. And the Son of Man, as you read this there in verse 6, the Son of Man is not to regard Christ, but rather mankind. William Barclay wrote it this way. We are so used to hearing this phrase applied to Jesus that we tend to always take it to refer to him. But in Hebrew, a Son of Man always means simply a man. We find, for instance, that in the book of Ezekiel, more than 80 times God addresses Ezekiel as son of man. More than 80 times in Ezekiel. This is, in fact, an expansion of the great promise of God at creation in Genesis 1.28. When he said to man, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. We are to have dominion. We are to take care of those things, to be good stewards of the things that God has given us, of this planet that we reside on for our 70, 80, 90, 100 years, however long God graces us to be here, we are to be good stewards of this planet. He's delegated that power to us, to mankind. Man was meant to have this dominion over everything, but he has not got everything, all, he has not had the dominion over everything as of yet. Man is frustrated by his circumstances, defeated by his temptations, and swallowed up by his own weaknesses. He, should, he who should be free is bound. He who should be a king is a slave. And then, Barclay wrote this. He said, uh, G.K. Chesterton said this, Whatever else is or is not true, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he is meant to be. We are not what we're meant to be. And we don't have all the dominion and authority as we should because of sin. It's not because of lack of power on God's part. It's because of an increase of sin on our part. It's because of a, a distance between us and God. It's a lack of holiness and righteousness on our parts. Eventually that time will come. That time will come. But as of now, 
we have this limited dominion and authority over all things. But angels don't have it. I want to be very clear of that. Angels don't have any of that authority. None of that dominion or stewardship responsibility. But we do as mankind. Secondly, the author writes in here about death and substitute. <clears throat> Look at verses 9 through 13. Verses 9 through 13. But we see Jesus. What a beautiful phrase. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So there's death and substitute is what I want us to look at there in verses 9 through 13. The first thing is this. We've talked about delegation and stewardship for angels and man. And neither one of those will suffice. Man was given back in Leviticus the actions to take to temporarily atone for man's sin. That was a temporary filling. It was never going to suffice for an eternal satisfaction of the need for God, for the need for the Father. But yet Christ came. We see Jesus. Do you see Jesus? Do you look around? Do you see Jesus? And, and do you look to Jesus? We've got to look to Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So how do we see Jesus? We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels. Well, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels? Well, Jesus Christ came in flesh, as Scripture tells us there in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to understand this. Angels do not inhabit the earth, nor do they manifest in mankind. They come and they visit, but they are not walking uh, in a normal, ongoing basis. We do know sometimes, Scripture tells us, that we may entertain angels unaware. That may occur from time to time, but I don't believe that they are here all the, all the time, manifest, obviously, in the flesh, as Jesus did. And this is what it's talking about, how He became incarnate. Okay, Jesus came in flesh, as Scripture tells us in John 1.14. Christ was born unto a virgin, and became like unto the creation, so that he may redeem that creation from the sin that brings death to the creature. And Jesus' purpose in being made this way was to suffer for our sins, not his own, and so that we would have a high priest who was familiar with our sufferings. That's the reason why Christ came. By Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent rising from the grave, Glory and honor is bestowed on Him as the all-sufficient, atoning, propitiating Savior for mankind. Let me say that again because I like it. 
by Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent rising from the grave, glory and honor is bestowed upon him as the all-sufficient, atoning, propitiating Savior for mankind. And it was by God's grace that he died in our place. It was by God's grace that he died in our place. Thus Paul writes in his epistle to the Ephesians, For it is by grace through faith that you were saved. We are saved by the grace of God. And Scripture tells us at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It was just the right time. By the grace of God, he died in our place. In verse 10, we see the language, to bring many sons to glory. So as you look at this, you, you look at verse 9 and you say, he might taste death for everyone. Well, well, what is that, universalism? Does that mean that Jesus died and everybody's going to heaven? But then you look there in verse 10, and it says it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what does that mean? This gives clarity to the understanding that Christ's death will not bring all peoples to Christ. His death will not bring all people to Christ. We do not hold to a universalism faith, but a faith of responsibility to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ by confessing Him as Lord and believing in your heart that God raised His Son from the dead for salvation. We believe that it is the responsibility of every hearer to make a decision as to who Jesus Christ is to you. Will He be Lord to you? Or will He be just some historical figure? And if you never confess Christ is Lord, you will not be entering into heaven. Everyone who dies does not go to a better place. Because everyone who dies has not always said that Christ is Lord of their life. That is the prerequisite and the absolute necessity of getting into heaven. It's not attending a church service. It's not tithing your 10%. It's not sitting in a Sunday school class. It's not any of those things. Salvation and for entrance into eternity with Jesus Christ is to say that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life and I believe that God raised His Son from the dead and you are saved. That is the way, the truth, and the life and it's only in Jesus Christ and it's the way you get to the Father. That's it. There's nothing else that's going to get you there. No amount of giving, no amount of serving, no amount of sacrificing. Because all the sacrificing and giving and serving was completed in Jesus for salvation. Not in you. And not in me. It's His work. It's His finished work. And when we see this, we also understand that it is God's desire that all come to faith in Him though. It is absolutely God's desire that. 2 Peter 3.9 reads like this. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is hoping and, and praying and desiring you to be a part of His family. But He does know who will and will not choose Him as Lord of their life. That's just the sovereignty of God. If you say he doesn't know, then, then you're absolutely removing him from where he is. We just don't know. 
We just don't know. And that's where I am not a Calvinist. Because everyone's got a responsibility to confess Christ. But who's going to know? And I've got to be faithful to share the gospel. God's called me to share the gospel in everything I do. I should be sharing the gospel. You should be sharing the gospel. Because you know what? I don't know who's going to be saved. I'm not God. But if you say God don't know who's going to be saved, you're taking, a, you're taking the sovereignty of God away from him. He knows, but we don't. So what's that mean? We need to be at work. We need to be at work sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with anybody and everybody so that whoever may be saved will be saved. That's what we've got to do. We've got to share the gospel. Moving down a little further there in our passage of Scripture. We see there uh, in verse 10, it says, For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things. This is where you get a lot of this idea that Paul wrote this. You get this idea that maybe, maybe Paul, maybe it just was Paul that wrote Hebrews. Because verse 10 is quite similar to many of Paul's writings such as Romans 11.36. It says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. 1 Corinthians 8.6, There is only one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him. Colossians 1.16, the latter part of that verse, All things were created through him and for him. And then in John 1.3, John kind of jumps off the Paul boat, but John 1.3, All things were made through him. This sounds a lot like one of Paul's statements, some of Paul's statements that he wrote in his letters to the churches. But we don't know, so I'm going to continue calling the author the author. But we know that we understand that all these things were done in and through and by him. In and through and by him. Christ's sufferings reveal there was no escape from the perils of humanity for him. He had to be our brother in full identification with our feelings and human pain. Look there in, uh, in verse uh, in, in the latter part of verse 10, it says, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Perfect through sufferings. We see him. You know, when, when we think about this thing that's perfect through sufferings, and he is not ashamed to be called one of our brothers. You know, just as you and I had to go through those awkward stages of life, so too did Jesus Christ. Jesus had to go through stages of life just as you and I did. Jesus had to learn how to walk. Really? Jesus had to walk? Yeah. I mean, many of you are parents. You, you had to help your child walk. You had to help potty train your child. You had to do all these different things. Jesus was a baby. He was in flesh, just as you and I. And I'm not trying to uh, try to put down on Jesus' humanity. I'm just telling you, he was human. He had to go through those years, as, many, as every one of us in this room just about have, in those middle school years of adjusting to changing from a child to an adult. Those puberty years, for us guys, our voices changing and everything else. You know, Jesus had to go through that. All these sufferings that we go through, he, he went through just the same, yet without sin. He was a human. He was 100% God and 100% man, yet he was without sin. This is the Jesus we see. We see Jesus as the Messiah he is. We see Jesus as the captain of our salvation. He, that's who he is. He let out. He was first. Now, for many of you, you may be movie fans like I am. Maybe you're a movie fan. And when I think of Captain, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Captain America. 
Captain America, right? He was the first Avenger. He really was. He was the first Avenger. And he led out as a symbol of heroism. <laughs> he sacrificed himself. If you've seen the first any, anything, he's got this. Uh, actually, it's, the, um, it's that blue square. I can't think of what it's called right now. I can't believe that I have forgotten what it's called. But anyway, it's on the plane, and he's flying in, and he calls uh, Linda Carter, uh, and he calls her, and he tells her he loves her, and he's going to splash that plane down into that icy water so that nobody can have that... Uh, oh, I can't think of the name of that blue box. But anyway, it's a blue box that they didn't want anybody to get a hold of. He didn't want the Nazis to get a hold of it anyway. But, huh? The Tesseract. There you go. Good job. I knew somebody watched the Marvel movies with me. But he crashed that in there because you know what? He sacrificed himself so that people could be saved. Jesus Christ is the captain. He has sacrificed himself. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay my life down. And he sacrificed himself as the captain of our salvation so that those things will not have its effect on us. That sin, we can go to Him and He will be our Savior. He is our salvation. Now granted, Captain America falls very short of Jesus Christ because his salvation was very short and very limited because you've seen there's a lot of more Marvel movies, right? A lot more villains. But Jesus defeats the one villain we're going to talk about here in a minute. The one enemy of us all. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But he was made perfect, Jesus was, because he became fully man and fully God. And in that way, he was able to suffice for the sacrifice of heaven and substitute for the sacrifice of man. That's the reason why I titled that part, Death and Substitute. He is our substitute. And he did it as a brother there in verse 12. He did it as a brother. I will declare your name to my brethren. There in verse 13, the first part, he did it as a trusted brother. They had seen his character. He said, I will put my trust in him. And he did it as a part of the body, not apart from the body. He said, here am I and the children whom God has given me. He was a part of that body. He died as a substitute amongst his people. It wasn't separate, it was a part of. That's the way he did it. Let's look at defeat and release. Verses 14 through 16. Verses 14 through 16. It reads like this. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Here he defeats Satan. He defeats the devil and he releases those from the fear of death that come to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus defeated Satan through his death in a mortal body, removing the power of Satan and the power of death. And this verse presents two facts about Christ and his death. First, it declares that Jesus shared the same humanity with human beings. And secondly, it presents the reason for his death. Now, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? He died to destroy the devil. He died to destroy the devil. Jesus' death was not a defeat. 
It was a triumph over sin and death. That's exactly what it was. See, sin always causes death. Romans 6.23 Our sin, not his sin, caused Jesus to die. His death snatched away our sin and guilt. That's what his death did. You may say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Satan is pretty active in me today. Satan is pretty active in me today. So how did Jesus, if Jesus defeated Satan, why is he still active in me today? Why is he still active in the world today? Well, here are your two questions. Your first question may be, how has Satan been destroyed? How has Satan been destroyed? Well, Jesus triumphed over the devil at the cross, Colossians 2.15. But we live in an interim period when we don't see the full effects of Jesus' death. Satan is still hanging around as a roaring lion. 1 Peter 5.8 is what Scripture tells us. He still has limited power in this age. We can read that in Ephesians 6.11 and 1 Timothy 3.17. But Satan's future doom is sure. Revelation 20.10. Your second question may be this. How did Satan hold the power of death? How did Satan hold the power of death? That's a pretty good question. You know, this, this statement raises a problem because Scripture asserts that God alone has charge of issues of life and death. And we find that in Luke 12, 5. But Satan, this is pretty interesting. As I was studying, I, I found this very helpful to me. Satan took the lead in introducing sin into the world by his successful temptation of Adam. Romans 5, 12 and of course Genesis 3. Satan has the power of death because he introduced sin which causes death. Satan sinned in heaven. He introduced death. And death is the fruit of sin, Romans 5.21. The death and resurrection of Christ has rendered powerless the one who was formerly the master of death. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection has done. It has rendered powerless the one who was formerly the master of death. Jesus releases us from the fear of death because he has removed the penalty of death. Jesus releases us from the fear of death because he has removed the penalty of death. We find that there in verse 15. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Jesus, when trusted and confessed as Lord, is now the Lord of your eternity, and you possess that eternity at the moment of salvation. Your eternity begins in, in the kingdom of heaven at the moment of salvation. No need to fear that last breath. No need to fear that last sunrise or sunset. No need to fear rejection when sharing the gospel. No need to fear man nor the devil because neither have dominion over the believer in Jesus Christ. There's no need to fear. You've been released from that by Christ's death and resurrection. Now we will face a natural death. Every individual. Because it's appointed unto men to die and then to judgment. Everybody's going to die that physical fleshly death. But everybody doesn't have to die that second death where you are eternally separated from God. Everybody doesn't have to participate in that. Because you can call upon Christ and your new life begins in Him at the moment of salvation. You've been regenerated. You've been redeemed. 
But I want to tell you, it is a difficult thing. It is a challenging thing to experience a funeral of a loved one or a friend who has died without Christ. Some of you maybe have been there. It's, it's difficult because there is a fear of death. There is a fear of death. And there should be a healthy fear of death for those that don't know Christ. Because that is a long time to be without any hope. It's a long time to be without the opportunity of salvation or redemption or regeneration. It's a long time to be without the, without the uh, presence of the Holy Spirit which is holding back the work of Satan. There's, there's a lot. There's a lot to be fearful about. And when that person dies, for those of us that are biblically literate, we know what that future holds and that eternity holds. And we mourn the full loss of that individual. We mourn the full loss. It's, you know, sometimes we, we're going to mourn the loss of someone when they die in this fleshly body. We're going we're gonna to mourn that. We're going to miss them. But we're not going to mourn. It's, it's, much, it's, it's a much sadder funeral. When someone that we know dies without a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a greater sadness for sure in that moment. But I want you to know that all this victory through death and release from fears is to humans. Men and women who have confessed Christ as the Lord of their life. Christ's death was not for angels, especially those who fell in the great rebellion. But his death was for mankind. Those created a little lower than God as our scripture quoted earlier. This salvation that Jesus died for you and me is the salvation that angels desire to look to. That desire, angels desire to see. The relationship that we have with God, uh, the Son to the Father. Scripture gives evidence of this in 1 Peter chapter 12. Things which angels desire to look into is what that passage says. And this is referencing the first line. If you go back to verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter uh, 12. It references this line, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. The angels wish that they could have a relationship with us like they did there. This is the defeat of Satan, death, hell, and the grave. And our release from the grip of those things to the grace that God brings. That's exactly what this is. And lastly, point number four, verses 17 and 18. Deity and humanity. Look there in verses 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus, as God the Son, was the only fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices and propitiation that was for and to God the Father. Propitiation means putting away the divine wrath. That's what that word means. Jesus was the only one who could put away the divine wrath of God. When people sin, they arouse the wrath of God. We see that in Romans 1.18. They become enemies of God. Romans 5.10. One aspect of salvation deals with this wrath. And it is to this the author is directing attention to this point. Christ saves us in a way that takes account of the divine wrath against every evil thing. Jesus, as 100% man and 100% God, 
reveals both his power as God to take on the sins of the world while he reveals his humanity of man to die as the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is both God and man. And as our high priest, unlike those priests who have come before, Christ completed the entire work of satisfying the wrath of God and made atonement for man's sins and sat down at the right hand of the Father. As I pointed out last week, the stature of priests were to stand because their work was never complete. Their work was never complete. But Christ completed the work. Christ completed the work. And when he was done, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Christ said, it is finished. But just as we can leave here, we can leave here right now in the glory of, of the deity of Christ as our propitiation for our sins, Jesus is also every bit as human, yet without sin. Every bit as human, yet without sin. This scripture clearly points out Christ's temptations. Satan tempted him for 40 days and nights, yet he did not sin. The Pharisees tried to provoke and entice him to anger and reactionary sin to no avail. Others pressed in on him to stone him and murder him, yet he chose to forgive, bless, and give opportunity for salvation for each and every one. It's what he did. Now, I want, I want you and I to understand this. Christ loves us. He loves us. He, he cares about us. If you go back in verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? This is what I want you to do right here at this point. Right there it says, what is man that you are mindful of him? There's a song that, that, that comes to my mind. I, I was talking about this in Sunday school. When I, when, when I read something, something comes to mind. I, I love music. I listen to a lot of music. And there was a song and it says, Who am I that you are mindful of me? That you hear me when I call. You ever heard that song? I always think about that. Who am I? Who, who, am, who am I that you are mindful of me? Who is, fill in your name in that blank, who is that you are mindful of me? That, that before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain for my sins. Who am I that you are mindful of me.